If you would ever come into my office and visit with me, and I hope everybody here would at some point come and visit at the church. I always have coffee. I always have treats. I, my door is always open. Um, if I, I'm not too busy, I love to be with my people. If you would ever come in and you would look over my right shoulder in my study there, you would see this painting. It's not an original. It's Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. And give that a second to fix that. But let me do a zoom in here because it's kind of hard from the glare. So this is Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. <clears throat> let me tell the story of why that's in my office and why it means so much to me. I, I hope this parable will mean a great deal to you after uh, this message, if it doesn't already. It was 25 or more years ago. I was a youth and campus minister at First Presbyterian Church in Meadville, Pennsylvania, doing ministry at Allegheny College. And the church was very encouraging and supportive of the ministry, and they were encouraging me to go off to seminary and to become a pastor. And part of that process says, well, we should probably have you preach some Sunday. So it was a summer like this, you know, the crowds are down, people are gone. They're like, even if he, you know, fumbles, it won't be too bad because it's the summer. So I, um, I, I tell you what, I had this thought, and, and despite my um, naivete, despite being uh, wet behind the ear, I, I got this much right. I said, okay, George. I talked to myself in the first person here. I said, okay, don't, don't try to be clever. Don't try to be new. Don't try to just wow them with some great insight as some punk kid here that does youth and campus ministry. Preach to them something they already know, they already love, they already affirm, they already agree with, and then they at least can't say you went wrong, right? So I had the idea, why don't I preach on the parable of the prodigal son. It's such a beautiful, compelling story that just encapsulates our faith so, so wonderfully. In my preparations for that, I read a book by Henry Nouwen called The Return of the Prodigal Son, where he just gives reflections in looking upon this painting as he recounts and tells the stories and lessons learned in this wonderful parable. Well, I will say this. I must have done pretty well. I remember being at the back of the church and the lineup and the shaking of the hands. It was like an old kind of church where you went right out to the outside. There's like no lobby and people, and you know, they're, they're just congratulating me. They said, you did, you did pretty good. Hey, you know what? You maybe, maybe you got what it takes. This is great. I was feeling blessed. I was feeling encouraged. But as I reflect on that experience, as I look back now on 25 years of ministry, I do think I preached the parable uh, faithfully. I think I was faithful to the text. I, I think I delivered a pretty good sermon. I probably prepared for that sermon more than any sermon I've ever delivered before or after. I, I mean, I probably spent two weeks preparing for that sermon alone. Um, but as I think back on it, it's not so much that I read the text wrong. I may have read the context wrong. Let me tell you a little bit of what I mean about that. You see, I was doing youth and campus ministry. And in particular, my experience on the campus was running into a lot of prodigal sons and daughters. Young people would have the experience of heading off to college and they would pretty much just run in the other direction of everything they had been taught if they had been taught good 
Christian lessons as young boys and girls in the church. Many, many, many went off on their prodigal journey during those first years of college. They would just, you, you, you know, I don't have to spell it out. You know what young students do when they get a taste of the world and they want to taste everything the world has to offer. But I also had the experience of very often around their junior or senior year, maybe some would start to come back. So the context of my ministry was doing ministry and calling back to the father, many prodigal sons and daughters. And so that's the message I delivered. I said, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep you've gone into sin, no matter what shame or guilt you're bearing, oh, my friends, turn and see the father running down the path to you. Feel his arms embracing you. Feel his kiss upon your cheek. Know that he wants to clothe you in robes of righteousness. Know that he wants, put, wants to put the signet ring of sonship, of daughtership on your hand. He wants to call you back to the family. Oh, come and know the love of the Father. Hallelujah and amen. Prodigals come home. Can I get a witness? But I was preaching at first Presbyterian Church of Meadville, Pennsylvania. And I kind of realized along the way of ministry, maybe that context, maybe our context here, people that willingly come to a worship service on a Sunday morning when they could be golfing, they could be biking, they could be doing just about anything else in the world, choose to come to a worship service. Maybe my context was more older brothers. So let's talk maybe a little bit more about the fullness of the story and how it addresses both the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter who runs far from God in a self-salvation kind of project trying to find their way in the world, but also the self-salvation project of older sons and older daughters who try to do everything just right and earn their way, win their way, will their way to the father's house. So Jesus is in the midst of his ministry and his ministry is bearing incredible fruit. He's been preaching a message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and people are actually repenting and coming and experiencing the fullness of a new life in and through Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And he is, despite all our ideas and images of what Jesus and faith and religion and religi religiosity might look like, the sinners and the tax collectors, the most unlikely of characters, seem to be the most drawn and most in love with Jesus. He was literally surrounded by those who were formerly cast out of religious faith and practice. And then it says that the Pharisees and the tax collectors, and I could preach a whole sermon on this, it says they were muttering. <laughs> it doesn't even say they said it to Jesus. They were muttering, mumbling amongst themselves, why is this Jesus associating with these sinners and these tax collectors. And in response, as Wendy's beautifully said, Jesus decides, I think I'll tell some stories. And so he tells the story of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and 99 are safe at home and in the midst of the flock, but one wanders off and is lost. And what does that shepherd do? Of course, the shepherd goes out, finds the sheep, puts the sheep on his shoulders and brings that sheep back into the flock. And what is the response? There is rejoicing. In fact, more rejoicing in heaven, Jesus says, over one lost sheep who comes home than over 99 who always stayed. And then he rolls right into another story. He tells a story about a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one of those coins in the house. 
if we're paying attention, Jesus has already set up a kind of a juxtaposition for us, right? One thing gets lost by going out there. One thing gets lost while being right here. Huh. What is Jesus up to in telling these stories? I do like that both stories end with great rejoicing with party, with celebration, with feasting together, which is why I always say, if anything, I would love Connection to be a church known for partying, known for feasting, known for celebrating, known for rejoicing. Amen, friends? The kingdom of God is a party. Jesus decides to bring these together and then a parable that is just, it's brilliant in its incredible economy of words that yet say exponentially more than we could ever dream up by our own wisdom. And he goes into the story. And like all the parables we've been talking about throughout this past month, the story, the stage is set for the parable in the scene that anybody can relate to, but then it's going to throw a twist that's going to make us think and ponder and meditate upon the deeper meaning of the story. So the story starts, there was a father and he had two sons. Act one, the story of the younger son. The younger son goes to his father, and you've probably heard preachers or commentators you know, speak on this. He goes to the father and he asks the unaskable, the unthinkable, the unimaginable. It's, it's offensive, it's, it's, it's horrible, it's, it's insulting. He asks the father for his share of the inheritance, for his share of the wealth. He's essentially saying to his father, you'd be better off dead to me because I really just want what your wealth, what you have to offer me from the household. Well, of course, as we know, the father could have laughed it off. He could have slapped him. He could have kicked him out of the house. He could have run him out. Uh, it was so preposterous. It was, it was so unimaginable. I mean, the crowd, of, this would, the crowd would have already been sort of in this like, okay, what is going to happen now in this story that Jesus is going to tell? Well, shock of all shocks, of course, the father decides to give to his younger son his share of the estate, but it's not just his estate. All the commentators will point this out and it should be pointed out. He asked for a share of the wealth, but whenever the father says he divided the estate, the original Greek gives us a great little insight here. It literally says he divided his bios, his life. That's how it would have had to have happened. He didn't have a bank account. He couldn't just go and make a withdrawal. He couldn't just Venmo the money over to him. He would have had to have literally sold off property, sold livestock, uh, sold off uh, servants. He would have had to sell back land that the, fa the family probably had inherited for generation after generation after generation. Somehow, and we don't need to know the details because it's a story, we're just told that he divides his life. He liquidates these assets and he gives it to the younger son. And then we're not surprised, of course, that the son runs off and does exactly what we would expect any prodigal son to do. Living the life just as we would expect any prodigal child to live. Nobody's surprised at that. But then they are delighted when they hear what happens. This is the moment of comeuppance in the story. Oh, he's about to get his. A famine falls on the land and he <laughs> fell broke because he had squandered everything. And then he finds himself, of course, working in this pig pen, wanting to eat the slop that the pigs are eating. And just pause long enough to understand what Jesus has brilliantly set up here, of course, is you could not fall further away as a good young Jewish boy or girl. <laughs> he has left 
the family estate. He has left the promised land. He has gone to a foreign land. He has squandered the fortune. And now he's in the most unkosher of places, wanting to eat the most unkosher of foods. Brilliant. You cannot go any deeper into the pit is where this younger son finds himself. And then beautifully, though, it says that he came to his senses. He had a moment. He had his aha. Just when he thinks, you know, when he realizes, really, it can't get any worse, he has that, wait a second, wait a second. And he devises this little plan, of course. He says, I'll, 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 you know, my father's house, I mean, there's, there's bread to spare. Well, why don't I go back? I can't go back as a son. I mean, that, that's off the table. There, there's no way. I, I can't even go back as a slave to understand the context. A slave would have been a part of the household in that culture and in that context. He actually wants to offer himself in the lowliest of position. Just make me a hired hand. Let me just jump ahead to an insight that will then reflect on the rest of the story. Of course, what he's asking here is saying, can I maybe work my way back in to your grace, into your goodness, into your household? Can I earn my way back to this? And the insight we're going to have is, of course, there's no way you could ever earn your way back for what you have done. Well, so he devises this plan to go back on the journey. And it says, as he approached the house, what we read is a beautiful insight in the or observation of the father, who we can kind of picture like has been just like longingly looking down that road for as much time as passed, sees his son coming down the road. He girds up his loins. We've talked about that before. I've mentioned that in other sermons. The indignity of this father. I mean, children run, soldiers run, a mother might run, but the patriarch of the family hikes up those robes, run that, runs down that path. The, the son is trying to, you know, give his little prepared speech on how he wants to work his way back into the family's good graces. The father, it says, throws his arms around his son, kisses him, the father then clothes the son in that robe. It says, put some sandals on his feet and put the signet ring on his hand. The mark of sonship, the mark of the family, the mark of full participation, every blessing, every bit of the inheritance back and restored to this younger son. And then finally he says, and kill the fattened calf. This is a community-wide celebration. This is the greatest day. That's what you save the fattened calf for when you can't imagine a better thing happening in your life. That's when you say, that's why we've been getting this calf all big and fat and juicy and ripe or whatever you call a fattened calf. I mean, just, this is it. This is the moment. There's nothing greater that could be happening. So we must celebrate and the celebration begins. End of act one. Act two, the older brother hears the sounds of the celebration, the music, the dancing. He grabs, you can kind of picture the scene. Another servant is kind of scurrying along, you know, getting everything ready, you know, kind of, hey, 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 what's going on? He tells them so briefly, well, your, your son, your, I'm sorry, your, your younger brother who was lost has is, is, is come back and your father has killed the fattened calf and there's a celebration, come and join. But what we find out, of course, is that he refuses to come into the celebration. The words that Jesus uh, uses here kind of uh, give us this, this insight into what's going on. It says that he was angry. 
and he refused to go to the celebration. And then don't miss this. What does the father do? He does the most undignified thing again. The host of the party, the host of the celebration leaves again and goes down that path to go and talk to, to meet with, to urge his older son to come back. And those are the words that we have in Jesus' story. He urged him. He was pleading with him. Come to the celebration for this brother of yours who was lost is found. He was dead, but he is alive again. We had to celebrate. We had to celebrate. The older brother is just incensed, and his words again betray his heart, his anger, his refusal. Uh, he, he talks about, I've been slaving away for you all these years. Think about that word. Never a son, a part of the household, working alongside with his father, slaving away. And he says, I've never disobeyed. He has lived to the letter of the law, but what this reveals is how lost his heart is and has been all this time. And of course, with that, the story ends. The story just ends abruptly with no act three, with no resolution. Jesus, in the brilliance and the economy of the story, again, would have had this crowd, in a sense, hanging, waiting, wondering what is going to happen. He's told the story of this shepherd who lost a sheep, and the, and the shepherd goes out and finds the sheep and brings that sheep that sheep back in. He's told the story of this woman who lost this coin within the household, but in her search, in her turning the house upside down, she's able to recover that lost coin. And now we have these two sons. One went out and got lost. And that's the story we relate to so easily. We know what it looks like to fall into the sins of the world, right? We know what it looks like to be a prodigal, to wander off. And we can even wrap our heads around that idea of coming back, returning, getting to home again. But Jesus so powerfully sets up then the story of this older son who was lost within the boundaries of the home. And he's been lost, it seems, all along. You have to wonder how many of the Pharisees realized at that moment, he's talking about us. He's talking about us. He's saying we are lost within the home. We are the ones who have allowed anger and refusal and bitterness to take root in our hearts such that we cannot rejoice when one of these sinners and tax collectors comes and receives the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. Did the Pharisees ever get it? Some of the Pharisees, of course, got it. <laughs> we know that from the ministry of Jesus some of the Pharisees did begin to turn and accept Jesus, but how many more, we have to wonder, never put it together, the lostness of their own hearts. You see, this is a story that helps us to confront the self-salvation projects of our own lives. Whether we're trying to find ourselves in the meaning of life and the purpose of life and the joys of life by running outside and embracing everything the world might have to offer, or whether we're trying to save ourselves by doing everything perfectly right and in that way, earn the favor of God. And what a lot of us who probably spend a lot of church would understand at this point is if we're honest with ourselves, as we assess ourselves, we are trying to get God to owe us something so often by our worship, by our giving, by our serving, by our sharing. And please don't misread me. There's nothing wrong with that. 
but the air that comes in that is when we're trying to do it to earn the favor of God instead of doing it out of a, res out of a response to the grace and the love of God that has freely been offered to us. Let me just mention three things I'd love for you to reflect upon and maybe pull up that picture and look at it yourself or come to my office and we'll make a cup of coffee and we'll just turn and look at it. <laughs> reflect upon a few things about what the story might mean for us before we wrap this up. The first thing is understand in all of these stories, it is the initiating, the moving love of God that wins us over. It was the father who saw his son on the path and runs out to him and embraces him and kisses him and throws the robe on him and puts shoes on his feet and the ring on his finger and kills the fattened calf. It's that initiating love of the father. And it's the father that again leaves the household, that leaves the celebration, that goes to the older son who is the one actually now left out in the dark. It is the initiating, moving love of God to both of his sons. Also think about this, receiving the love of God does require some kind of true repentance. We understand the repentance of the younger brother, of course, that's obvious, that's easy. He realizes what he does, what he's done. He realizes the mistakes he's made. He understands the depths to which he's sunk and he repents, he turns. And in his turn, he finds forgiveness and love and the embrace of God in his life. But understand then that the older brother never repents of his self-righteousness. I've always obeyed you. <laughs> and he's angry about it. <laughs> Have we repented from our self-righteousness? Have we repented from our self-salvation project of trying to get everything so right in our life that it's actually God who owes us instead of we, out of grateful response, give God everything that we have back to him? Both brothers needed to repent. Both brothers needed to turn. Both brothers needed to understand and receive the love of the Father that was always running to them. And the third thing for us to consider a little bit about this is this is just a paradigm shift in our understanding of salvation, isn't it? I mean, here is where Jesus is just telling us, I want to rock your world. I want to change the way you think about salvation. It doesn't happen out there trying to run away from it. It doesn't happen in here trying to get everything right. It happens when you experience the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, his love poured out for you, the complete transformation. In fact, it's so profound, the transformation, the closest thing that we can understand it to is saying, it's like you have to be born again. <laughs> You just have to be born again. You need to become a new creation through this love of my son, Jesus Christ, who came to you. Well, I invite the band to come up and they're gonna get ready to lead us in some worship because the final thing that I wanna leave you with then is kind of the, uh, the, the subtext of this point. And Tim Keller draws this out beautifully in his reflections on the parable of the prodigal son, where he simply says in this final chapter in his book, Please understand that what Jesus has set up here for us is that he is the older brother that we've always longed for, that we've always needed. You see, again, in that context, in that culture, what people have understood is that the oldest son always bore the responsibility. The oldest son was supposed to be the one to carry on the family name, to maintain the estate, to continue what had been begun and was passed on from generation to generation. Joseph was supposed to have been protected and loved by his older brothers, but his older brothers 
threw him into a pit. The responsibility always fell to the oldest brothers, but how often the oldest brothers fell short in their responsibilities. In this context, in this story, what we understand is that oldest brother, that older brother should have said, Father, I will go and find my lost brother. I will go and find your lost son. I will go and try and win him back and bring him back to our household. But he never did. And Jesus was telling the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and you haven't as well. So God the Father said, I will send my son, my son, Jesus, and I love how Romans chapter eight puts it so beautifully that the whole mission and ministry of Jesus was also that he might just be the firstborn among many sons and daughters, that he would bring all the younger sons, all the older sons, all the prodigals, all the lost back to the family of God. And so Jesus left the household of heaven and he came to bring us back. And when he came running down the path to meet us, of course, he wasn't met, met with open arms of embrace. He was met with fists and with jeers. He was not clothed with a robe, but he had a robe stripped off from him. He did not have a signet ring put on his hand, but he had nails put through his hands and his feet. Nobody killed a fattened calf for Jesus. We know that Jesus became the lamb of God sacrificed for our sins, right friends? And that's what this table means because you do have to love how each of these stories ends with a feast and with a celebration because it is at the feast we know that we get what our body needs, but we know that it is a feast that we get what our souls need as well. We get family, we get friends, we get laughter, we get joy, we get celebration. We get what our souls need so much. And so Jesus invites us to this feast so that we can get what our souls need more than anything else a right relationship, forgiveness and restoration in and through Jesus Christ. So on the night that Jesus Christ would be betrayed, after giving thanks to God, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. It's gonna be broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And after supper, he took the cup and after living it, lifting it up, he gave thanks to God, saying, This cup is now the new covenant which will be sealed in my blood, which will be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul gives us that key insights, telling us that every time we now gather and we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, what we are doing is we are proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again. And he has promised to come again. He has promised not so much to bring us home to heaven, but to bring home in heaven to us in his return, to fully restore the kingdom of God. But what he tells us, that at this table, we get to taste, we get to experience, we get to become a part of that home right here and right now. We get a foretaste of the feast of all saints throughout all eternity when we receive this gift and come to this table. And so I invite you, my brothers and sisters in faith, to come and to feast at this table. Here at Connect